Canada Conversations is brought to you by Deloitte Canada, helping you navigate the complex challenges your company faces through recovery and enabling you to thrive in the new normal. To learn more, visit Deloitte.ca. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the October 16th, 2020 episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. I'm your host, Greg Layson, the digital and mobile editor here at Automotive News Canada. It's been nearly a decade since one of Canada's foremost auto analysts once told me, you've got to pay to play if you're a government hoping to convince an automaker to build cars in your jurisdiction this day and age. And it appears the federal and Ontario governments are willing to do just that. They recently combined to give Ford Motor Company nearly $600 million to retool the company's assembly plant in Oakville, Ontario. And my guest today expects FCA and even General Motors might get some taxpayer money too during these contract talks between Unifor and the Detroit 3. But is it the right thing to do? Is it necessary? Do automakers need government money? And if they don't need the money, why do governments offer it up at all? We'll get the answers to those questions and more when I speak with the head of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Mr. Aaron Woodrick, on this episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. Aaron, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, I'm going to cut right to it. Did you see this coming, this massive investment, that's what they call it, from the federal and Ontario governments? Yeah, I'm not surprised. And frankly, I'm never surprised when I see, uh, you know, taxpayer money going to an automaker. Um, it is definitely an industry that has been treated uh, differently than, than a lot of industries in this country for, for various reasons. So it did not surprise me uh, that money was coming. I was I did raise my eyebrow a bit um, at the provincial contribution. Uh, people remember Doug Ford, you know, ran pretty explicitly on saying he was against what he called corporate welfare, then right. um, he, he even showed up at, uh, you know, companies that have received money under the McGinty and Wynn liberals and just slammed it. And yet here he was, uh, you know, just like Kathleen Wynn partnering with Justin Trudeau to give money to a large business. So I, I thought it was quite the uh, 180 for Doug Ford and his party. Was that your first initial reaction? Was that what surprised you most? Or I just wonder what your initial reaction was when you saw it, because my initial reaction was the amount. I was I was surprised at the amount of money both governments kicked in because typically when we see this, it's about 20% of a project. In this case, it's almost a third. You might as well call it a third. I just wonder what your first reaction was or what surprised you the most out of it. Yeah, the amount. I mean, initial reports had put it a bit lower. It turned out to be a little bit higher. Um, 600 million is, is, is not chump change anyway. You slice it. You know, I... I did get the sense it was going to be more than we usually see when I had heard the reports before the number was finalized. And the government was openly signaling that they had basically said to Ford, we'll do whatever it takes. I mean, I don't think you have to be a master negotiator to know that if you signal to the people you're negotiating with that you are absolutely desperate, you're probably setting yourselves up uh, for them to drive a much harder bargain than they otherwise might. Let me ask you this, because you're right. Um, Leading into these negotiations, these contract talks, both levels of government had said to media, including us, that, yeah, we're at the table or we have their ear or we're talking with government officials all the time. Should the taxpayer know what's being discussed? Because for the most part, the union members know what's being discussed. I mean, they set the agenda. And for the most part, the company executives at the table their management and board knows what's being discussed for the most part. Should there be more transparency 
to the taxpayer during the talks rather than finding out after the fact how much the governments have ponied up. Yeah, you know, that's challenging because uh, I get the same question about things like trade negotiations, right? Uh, uh, and and there, is an, there is an issue of transparency. I think the, the expectation of transparency is heightened when you know there's taxpayer money on the table. Whenever that happens, I think there is, there should be a higher threshold for it. Um, and, and, you know, the same is true of, of strings attached to money. Uh, we often run into this problem, people saying, well, you know, we can't disclose the terms because it's commercially sensitive. And so you get kind of get trapped in this catch 22. Well, taxpayers just have to put the money on the table, but they don't actually get to know how much, what the terms are, whether they get repaid. And I sort of think, you know, even if you want to take the view that these sorts of things are necessary, surely there has to be some basic level of transparency and accountability. Otherwise, Taxpayers really uh, just take it on the chin all the time, and they have absolutely no recourse. So just to be clear, where do you stand on um, government money being spent on projects like this? Are you and the Taxpayers Federation completely against it in every single way? Or are there instances where it's okay to contribute to these projects? I just wonder where you're at if there's a line in the sand. Yeah, our general position is uh, we are in favor of uh, we are in favor of a better business climate. We like free enterprise. You want to make more money, you should be able to keep more of it. But uh, we do not make distinctions between industries. If you cannot make money, if a project is not viable, that is not something that should be subsidized for the simple reason that once you do it once, you have opened the floodgates, and that is exactly what has happened is in this country is each project justifies the next one, and everyone is able to point to another industry or another business that got the handout and then say, well, why can't we get one too? And I think in a universe where you could contain it to you know a handful of projects, maybe it might not be a big problem on the bottom line, but that is never what has happened. It is only grown and expanded, frankly, into industries which, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, never would have expected this kind of support uh, in the way that uh, industries like auto or aerospace. do. Yeah, let's not forget that FCA retooled Windsor for about the same price about 10 years ago and did it all on their own. Would you like to see more of that? What does that tell you when an automaker does that? When they say no, thank you, which Sergio Marchionne did, to federal and provincial money. We'll pay for this ourselves. Um, What do you say when you see just a decade ago, an automaker, a major automaker spending its own money to do it. And now here we are where Ford, another major automaker is taking taxpayer money to do a very similar thing. Yeah. Well, it shows that they're perfectly capable of doing it themselves and they are. Look, I mean, I'll, I'll be perfectly blunt with you. Everybody knows what happened here. Ford was could have done this all themselves. But Ford is also a rational actor, and they know that they can build these cars anywhere they want to. And so they're able to go around and say to each government, what are you going to give me? And I think it's completely rational for Ford to say, well, why should we build them in Ontario and put all our own money in, you know, when we could go over to Mexico or go to another state and get a handout there? So there is a there is a perverse incentive for any large business to, to take this attitude. But I, I think we should just be honest about what's going on here. Ford got the best deal they could get. It happened to be Ontario and Canada that was ponying up the money. Um, what I resent, I would say, is that the governments, uh, you know, in Ontario and Canada present this rather than as a sort of grim necessity, but as some exciting opportunity. I mean, why can't they just say, 
you know, uh, we hate to do this, but we don't have any choice. If we don't give them the money, they won't come here. I think I would still be upset about that, but I think that would be much more honest than trying to bamboozle people by saying, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to invest. Well, if it's such a great opportunity, why isn't Ford putting in all their own money? Because it's a, it's a surefire way for them to get a return. Yeah, I, I mean, there is a, an opportunity to save 3,000 jobs here, but we heard Jerry Diaz say it's 4,300 people that are either employed or on the layoff list right now, and this will only, in the end, save 3,000 jobs. So are we, in fact, paying as taxpayers to have jobs lost rather than even gained? I just wonder if you look at it in those terms, because... Um, revenue comes from not only business tax and corporate tax, but also the the taxpaying citizens. So you'll now have 1,300 people fewer working at Ford if the projections play out the way Unifor has said they do. Sure. And I go even further than where the revenue comes from. I mean, when you're when you're paying people out of revenue and they pay tax back to you, you're really just getting a rebate. I mean, it's a bit like me saying, I'll give you 20 bucks. You buy a pizza off me for 10. I, cl- I can't really claim that 10 is new revenue because I gave you 20 in the first place to do it. And that that's essentially what happens here. So I really don't buy this argument that, oh, well, they pay tax. Yeah. If their, their paycheck is coming entirely out of taxes, you know, when they pay tax out of that, they're just giving you a bit back of what you already had. So I, I don't buy that. I would say that the yardsticks have definitely moved. Uh, it used to be you go back, uh, you know, these announcements were about creating new jobs. Over time, it became about uh, creating new jobs and maintaining jobs. Yep. And now it's almost to the point where it's it's uh, losing fewer jobs. I mean, I, I really it's frustrating to say, you know, they used to make these types of announcements and they'd say, we're, you know, it's 500 new jobs. Now they have to lump in the maintained and, you know, going forward, this is not the first announcement that I have seen where the total headcount will actually be smaller, even with the, with the taxpayer support. And that's frustrating because I think you get, you get yourself into a tricky spot where jobs essentially become a hostage negotiation and companies say, well, you know, we've got to employ a thousand people here. It'd be a real shame if those jobs had to go. And then governments are in the very awkward spot of saying if they don't give them the money, they look callous and people's jobs are at stake. But uh, really, what's to stop uh, any business from doing this periodically over time? Because uh, those jobs are always going to be a, a very uh, useful bargaining chip. We'll hear more from Aaron Woodrick after this short break. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an unprecedented impact on the world's population and economy. Social distancing and self-isolation measures have taken consumers out of the auto retail market, while concern over worker safety continues in manufacturing facilities globally. An increasingly distressed supply base is facing the potential for large-scale liquidity issues, which may lead to increased M&A activity throughout the ecosystem. Significant uncertainty remains around the permanence of current consumer behaviors and the extent to which they will be able to re-engage with the sector. Through Deloitte's State of the Consumer Tracker series, We discuss timely data and trends and highlight key consumer insights. We also explore how behavioral preferences take shape over time to allow businesses to make strategic decisions in this dynamic market environment. The ongoing survey results are also available via an interactive dashboard, the Deloitte Global State of the Consumer Tracker. Check in every two weeks to explore new consumer insights and emergent trends. Welcome back to the show where I'm talking government investment in the auto industry with Aaron Woodrick the head of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Is there a way to tie job numbers to this, to this money? So is it possible for the levels of government to say, we will give you X amount of dollars, but only if you maintain 
an employment base of X amount of um, workers. Is that a way to do this? Is that rational, doable, um, feasible? I just wonder if it's done anywhere else where the job numbers themselves are tied to the taxpayer's money and the companies only get it if they maintain that number of employees. Sure, it's possible to do that, and, and a lot of governments try. There, there's a couple of problems with it, though. First of all, it's always time-limited. So even if you say for the next five or ten years, that, that will eventually run out, and then the company can play the game again after that period. So you can stave off the, the next round of, um, of, of hostage negotiations, if you will, but you can't eliminate it. The other thing, too, is it actually bogs down the company um, for making sound financial decisions. I mean, if there is a plant in a part of the country producing a vehicle and sales of that vehicle drop and they don't need to build as many of those vehicles, a normal company would just cut their workforce accordingly because that's what makes sense. But if a company is bound to say, well, we have to employ these 500 people, even if we don't need them, it can actually undermine the company's uh, you know, financial viability by requiring them to keep workers that uh, they really don't need to have. Right. So they would lose either way. They would keep the employees employed, but then be losing money or lay off the employees and have to pay back the taxpayer money. So there isn't it's a lose lose situation. It sounds like you're painting. Well, yeah, it, it just it involves another stakeholder in the process that is not making decisions for economic reasons. Right. The government is concerned about job creation, um, but they are concerned about whether those jobs are there, regardless of whether they need to be. And this is, I think, the awkward conversation people need to have. Uh, And I I don't say it lightly. I got friends who I'm from the Waterloo region. Right. I got friends who work at Toyota. I got family members who work down the road in uh, Butech and Woodstock. Uh, But if if you are producing a vehicle that people are not buying. Uh, you're not going to have as many people employed. And it does not make any sense to say, well, we should just have this number of people employed there regardless of how many vehicles are being purchased. I mean, this is not the way any other business works. You hire the number of people you need to produce the stuff or provide the service that you're providing. And for some reason, people think when it comes to building cars or, or planes for that matter, we need to have this fixed number of people working there regardless of what the market says, You know, how, how many we need to, to build the vehicles that are in demand. A number of years ago, Dennis Rosier, one of the most um, well-respected and longest-serving auto analysts in this country, told me, we are now at a point, and this was almost a decade ago that he said this, we're at a point now where you almost have to, quote, pay to play in the auto industry, end quote, meaning that if you're a government and you want these jobs, you have to come up with the money. Is that the point we're at now? Do you see money going to GM and FCA in the next two contracts that we still have to hammer out here this month? I definitely worry about it. And if I'm one of those companies, I'm looking at Ford and, and, and I'm licking my chops and saying the government has already signaled. And I mean, again, this is what I talked about earlier. Once you do it for one, it's really hard to say no to anybody else. And I think the fundamental problem that, uh, that governments have yet to explain is what makes automotive different. Uh, the same, again, aerospace, there's a few other sectors that are treated very differently. And we hear a lot of you know, buzzwords about technology and skills. And but when it comes down to the dollars and cents, um, it's not clear why they should be treated any differently. I don't think they should be singled out and treated uh, extra badly. But I do think it's hard for people who work in countless other industries to say, why is it my responsibility as someone in another industry to continually support an industry that cannot survive on its own two feet? I'll play devil's advocate then and, and, and throw this out there, which is what we hear all the time from unions and government. If there is one person employed in an assembly plant owned by a major automaker, that is up to nine other spinoff jobs. What do you say to that? I say that's true of any job. 
right? I mean, if you, if I run a pizza place, I've got to, I've got to buy mushrooms and pepperoni and stuff from other suppliers. Uh, there's supply chains in almost every industry. And the idea that, again, that there's a unique economic impact. I, I don't know. I don't begrudge uh, union leaders in the industry. They're looking out for their workers. They're looking out for their corner. I, I don't expect any of them to voluntarily say, yeah, you know, maybe the industry is going the way of the dodo bird and we should just let it die. That's not their job. But I do think there are a lot of other people that are saying, okay, assuming I don't work in this industry, can you please explain to me what makes it different than many of the other industries where we don't get taxpayer support when there's an issue? Could the argument be made that um, because of the life cycle of a vehicle and the fact that the auto industry is so integral in you know just about every economy, that these jobs are more secure and they are longer lived. I mean, if you just take the life cycle of one vehicle, for example, it's about seven to 10 years. So could the argument be made that these are more important because they last longer, they're a bit less precarious than other fields of employment? Well, if they if they are secure employment, then again, why do we need to subsidize them? So, you know, if, if the argument is, well, these are, these are, these jobs are, uh, supported by the industry and they're, they're great jobs. Uh, well then what, why do we require this constant intervention and tinkering? I mean, that to me suggests the opposite. If it requires so much curation and involvement from government, it suggests to me that they aren't actually. And look, again, I get it. There are, there are, in, there are parts of this country, the same is true with Bombardier in Montreal. It's true with the oil sector in Alberta. Um, if you have a community that has a long history that's invested in a particular industry, it's extremely painful if that industry starts to die. I am not downplaying that, and I'm not saying that we do nothing about it, but I am saying, let's be honest, the reason, the only reason that uh, industries like uh, automotive industry and aerospace have particular um, uh, clout with politicians is precisely because they're concentrated in certain areas where, you know, entire communities rely on them. If that, if that was not true, if they were spread out uh, in a way where no one community was re- reliant on them for jobs, I don't think you'd see anywhere near the sort of political clout that, that they have. So what sort of government intervention or government action or government policy would still um, spur investment and, and get automakers to invest in Canada but also at the same time, stop the need from having to fork out taxpayer money. What What is the magic formula, Aaron? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, there's no magic formula to guarantee a particular industry in this country. There is none. They're, they, the only guaranteed way to get a business to stay here is to pay them to stay here. And again, I would rather have a politician say that's what they're doing than pretend that it's a partnership or an investment or an opportunity. If, if they were at least would look us in the eye and say, I don't want to do this, but we can't let the company go. So I have to give them this money. Uh, At least they would be, I think, transparent about what's going on here. Uh, You know, our view is always don't play favorites with business. If you create an environment where uh, a business can keep more of the money they earn as much as possible, um, that is sustainable because you're not required to pay them anything. And it's also fair. So it's not saying, you Ford get money, but you Chrysler don't, you know, you Bombardier get money, but you in the oil sector don't, you just simply say your business, you pay this low rate. I think that's the fairest way to go. And frankly, it's the only way to prevent yourself uh, from being held hostage down the road, because that to me is the biggest problem with these subsidies. You know, it, it's good. It's good for the day of you get the ribbon and everyone gets the good press and everyone's happy. But what's going to happen in five or 10 years, you're really just setting yourself up for uh, for another round of it. And does it exponentially increase year after year or contract after contract or 
government after government because right now you have the liberals in power and the PCs in Ontario that might flip. So does does the money continue to go up? Is that a pattern you've seen that these investments keep getting bigger as the contracts continue to roll over? Yeah, and even if they don't get bigger, they definitely become more uh, politically salient because it's a lot easier. Like it's a lot more damaging to a government if a business says, "Hey, we already employ a thousand people in this plant in this city, right?" And we might pull the plug. That's a lot more damaging than um, not, you know, not paying money to create jobs which aren't there already, right? Because those people are already employed. Those people already have families. Communities already reliant on them. So it, you're actually just giving a bigger bargaining chip to the company. And again, I, I don't want to I don't want to belittle companies and suggest they're all evil. They're they're acting rationally. If you can get a better deal in in one place rather than another, um, you're going to take it. But I think the the mistake is governments for for setting the table on this. It's not just in Canada. It's it's in a lot of places. And I I acknowledge that it is um, it's easy to talk about. Oh well, we should we should be principled and not do it. While other places are not nearly so principled. What I would caution on is if you get into this bidding war with places where they have much deeper pockets, you're not going to win anyway. And that's what I fear is, you know, the, the nightmare scenario is a place like this Ford announcement in five or 10 years, uh, an American state or a place like Mexico comes along and offers on a whopping sum of money to move. What are our governments going to do then? Are they going to pay 10 times as much to keep the plant here? Or are they going to let it go? And then what happens to, uh, to those employees and, and those communities? Well, let's hope it doesn't get to that. And But if it does, let's hope you're still around and you'll come on and talk about it. Is that a fair deal? <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right. Aaron, terrific conversation. Love following you on Twitter. I encourage everyone to do it. Um, great insight. Appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. We reached Aaron at his home office in Ottawa. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, have a suggestion, or simply want to comment, email me at glason at autonews.com. And remember, you can listen to all our previous shows on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or on our website, automotivenews.ca. That does it for this episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. We hope you join us next time. So long, everybody. 